I'm here with Keith Horton and Ellen Townsend, who have both given keynotes uh, at the conference here in Derry. Um, thank you for, for speaking to me. Keith, give us a, a bit of an overview of, of what you spoke about in your Self-Harming Young People keynote. Okay, well, um, first of all, I touched on the sort of epidemiology, in other words, the occurrence of, uh, of well, both self-harm and suicide, and uh, using what we call the iceberg model, where um, you have, obviously, suicide at the top, then you have self-harm, um, which presents to clinical services or involves individuals coming to clinical services, um, be they hospital services or community services. And then it, we've become increasingly aware that much self-harm occurs in, in the community and doesn't come to the attention of clinicians. Uh, families may be aware of it, friends may be aware. In many cases, no one will be aware that the person is self-harming. Um, and um, the, I should just say what we mean by self-harm, um, because there's often confusion about this. We use the term to describe intentional, non-fatal um, self-injury and also intentional overdoses um, and other, some other methods um, which people do intentionally. So it's a sort of broad category of, uh, of behaviour. We know that um, it's become more common. It's in, our, in England, it's become more common, particularly in uh, teenage girls, um, although we don't know exactly why that is. Um, in terms of suicide, thankfully, suicide is relatively rare in, in, in young people. Um, but again, in England, we've in recent years seen increases in suicide in both... Uh, Young, young males and, and uh, young, young females, which is obviously very, very concerning. And different to the national trend overall? Well, that's right. I mean, the national trend has generally been down in, in decreasing adults since, the, uh, since we sort of made some sort of recovery from the recession, which um, had a bit quite an effect on uh, suicide rates. So yes, counter to that to that pattern. So that that's that's that, that is concerning. Um, I then talked about um, some of the uh, contributory factors. Uh, I mean, there are many contributory factors to self harm. Uh, you know, it's a, what we call a multifactorial problem, um, and I just touched on some of them. And uh, in particular, I mean, there's been some interesting work showing the relationship between uh, young people starting to self-harm and, and the onset of puberty, um, particularly in girls again. Um, and uh, so, some work, and particularly a recent study uh, from Bristol, showing an association with early puberty. In other words, people who have an early puberty are more at risk of self-harming later on in their teens and indeed in their early 20s. So that's, that's really interesting and important and um, we don't fully understand what that's caused by but it does um, suggest that maybe we should be thinking about means of trying to help people youngsters particularly girls who have early puberty to deal with whatever issue you know the issues that they may have around that which might be um, sort of interpersonal maybe um, them being ostracized bullied even 
um, because of uh, their you know early early development, or there may be biological factors. We don't know, but but nonetheless, that would suggest maybe that should be a focus of self harm. Sorry for prevention. Um, we all, I also talked a bit about um, uh, the the fact that self harm often has a a relationship to sleep disturbance. And I think we're becoming aware that there's more more and more sleep disturbance in youngsters. Quite a bit of it probably relates to the use of mobile phones and people accessing mobile phones at night, uh, although there may be obviously other other contributory factors. Um, and uh, I also talked about people who have ups and downs in mood uh, at an early stage, and that can be a, an indicator that they may be at risk for for uh, self-harming uh, later. And then I touched on the... Um, influence of the media on in self-harm on young people. I mean, we used to obviously focus very much on print media, and I gave some examples of where uh, suicides had been reported really badly in, in major newspapers with front-line, uh, front-page uh, stories, whole-page stories, pictures of the young people, photo galleries of other people, young people who died, and so on. That, thankfully, has improved a lot following... Uh, getting the message out to journalists um, about, about reporting. But also, of course, increasingly there's the whole issue of um, what happens on the internet, uh, uh, both in terms of reporting, but also availability of websites which may be damaging, uh, including pro-suicide websites, which are very easy to access, um, which may actually not discourage self-harm. Um, and uh, and one of the questions is around social networking. You know, is it is it helpful? Is it harmful in relation to this behaviour? And and the evidence currently would suggest for some people it's actually helpful because they get support through social network through uh, social interactions on online. And but for others, it may be harmful and uh, um, uh, maybe too much discussion of self harm can have a sort of triggering effect and may make things worse. And then I um, uh, talked about the relationship between self-harm and, and subsequent suicide in youngsters. Fortunately, it's much less common that young people who have been self-harming will subsequently die by suicide. Um, but, I mean, there is nonetheless uh, an association uh, and uh, it may be uh, that having self-harmed at a very early stage in life may make a person more vulnerable to suicide, not just in the, in the short term, but in, in the longer term. That's what our data um, uh, would, would suggest. And finally, I talked about the uh, impact that self-harm uh, has on families and the fact it can have a major effect I mean, we interviewed uh, uh, nearly 40 parents of uh, young people who are self-harming and uh, showed the impacts it has, particularly on the emotional states of parents, uh, how they uh, understand their family dynamics and the change it can have in that sense of the family, uh, their parenting uh, approaches to parenting both the person youngster who's self-harming and other young people, impacts on their relationship with their partners, with other family members. Uh, and then the important um, fact stories they told about uh, what they wanted from clinicians and what young pe their young people needed in terms of a, a sympathetic understanding approach, uh, involvement of the families in care, 
And also they particularly ask for, uh, for information. And as a result of that, um, we've developed uh, uh, an online um, resource which shows some of the interviews with, with uh, these parents, uh, which hopefully parents can find useful, uh, other parents can find useful. And we produced a couple of guides, one for parents uh, about self-harm, and uh, in the UK, uh, 40, 000, over, nearly 50,000 copies of that now have been requ requested and sent out. So it shows there's a big demand for something like that. And more recently, uh, we produced a guideline for, for school staff um, about self-harm and how to, to deal with it in the school setting. Brilliant. Thanks, Keith. Wow, what a whistle-stop tour. And listening to this, he has no notes. He did that all off the top of his head, everyone. Um, <laughs> so we'll tweet links to Health Talk Online and to the, the PDFs of those okay, guides yeah, for people. Yeah, if you're listening to that, you can yeah, download those. Thank you. That's great context. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, so when it's such a complex problem and when the factors that influence it are so multifactorial, as you say, mm. how, do we, how do we communicate that message more clearly? Because, you know, the newspaper reporting of self-harm mm. is all, you know, yeah. teenagers use Instagram, it yeah. causes them to yeah. self-harm. Yeah. How do we communicate this very complex mm. message into that space? Well, certainly one of the key things that's in media guidelines, such as... in uh, uh, in in the UK's um, the Samaritans media guidelines, which are excellent, is the fact that uh, focusing on a single cause for it's typically suicide usually is, is very misleading because it, it, it's almost never due to a single cause. There may be a a, 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 a factor which seems to you know, push the person towards the act, but it will usually occur in the context of other problems, be it depression, family problems, interpersonal problems, bullying, and uh, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and I think it's really important to try and get that message over. Um, but it also makes, of course, when you think about prevention, it makes it really quite complex. You know, you can't just tackle one potential preventive uh, component and I'm, I'm not sure we've quite fully grasped that uh, that, that fact and, and uh, how we do it I mean mostly we think about prevention in the school setting school-based programs well obviously doing those in the context of busy school curricula is very very difficult although there is evidence of some effectiveness of some recent programs um, the other thing I think we need to think about is, is how we might prevent through, fa through parent, parental programs and that's something I think we're really just starting to think about what could be done to help parents recognise you know, when there may be problems that might lead to self-harm and so on and so forth and how to deliver that to parents who have children who may be at most risk which can, you know, can be pretty challenging. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure yet how we do that, but um, maybe through work, you know, workplace programs and so on. So, Alan, moving on to you, you've developed um, a really simple but really effective system for talking to young people about self-harm. So, tell us about it. Following on from what Keith was saying about the kind of multifactorial kind of complexity of self-harm, we wanted to find a way to capture that. Uh, and to allow young people to tell us, I guess, the story of their self-harm and um, to use 
cards as a as a means to do that. And what's really interesting and what I didn't get to say in my keynote is that in our work we find that young people put cards down in the card sort task that they've not talked about in a face-to-face -face qualitative interview. So there are some things that having the card, it's almost a, a permission to say, actually, do you know what? That's happened to me. And maybe that's really understandable because as I said in my talk, there are some very tricky topics on those cards. You know, really awful things have happened. And to say that to someone on a first assessment when you're being assessed in whatever assess uh, setting it might be, it might be just a bit too, too much. So the card sort, allows young people to, the way we have it formulated at the moment, over time described what the thoughts, feelings, events and behaviours are that have led up to their self-harm. So we're increasingly feeling that it's quite a mentalisation task, so it's getting people to think about thinking and what are the things that are leading them to, um, to engage with self-harm. So we're in the early stages of both testing it as a research tool but what's really interesting is that our involvement with young people um, has shown us that they really want to use this as, as a tool um, to, to communicate because they really struggle. And that's come out of our work really strongly. Young people really struggle to trust anyone and they really struggle to talk to people about how they're feeling. So the cards afford a way of starting really difficult conversations oftentimes with people you don't know that you've just met for the first time and you're distressed and some some really awful things have happened so this is a kind of collaborative way of sort of mapping out actually this is how I've got here and with the tricky cards it may be that a young person puts that card down and says well you need to know to understand my journey here that this has happened but I am nowhere near ready to talk about that so in a kind of therapeutic process you could have that in the back of your mind that we need to think about this and where we're going and sort of um, creating a map of where we might go for any kind of intervention or supports and services. So the card sort tool is a research tool, yeah. um, but it, it sounds to me like it has you know, huge potential relevance to a, a practice yeah. situation. I'm interested in how young people find their way into a situation where they're sitting with somebody in front of these cards. So yeah. how do they... How do they get there? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it will vary country by country. And in you know, the UK, Keith talked about the iceberg model. So mostly the way young people come to have that conversation is through coming into an emergency department, having hurt themselves in some way, and then being assessed. So an adult will say, what brought you here today? Discuss. So you can imagine if you have the cards and you can sit down with a young person and say, so... Should we just talk about, I've got these cards, some of these might apply to you and some of them may not, and there might be things that we haven't even got here that we can add in. So it, rather than just having that, you know, kind of space of tell me what's happened to you, it's a really useful scaffolding tool to have those tricky conversations. So the work that we're doing at the moment is twofold. One is working with experts at delivering, uh, developing interventions like Dave Job's, uh, in DC, so I spent some time in the summer over there working with him and thinking about how to develop this further. And then working with the frontline workers themselves and going in to training and letting them have a go at the task and imagining, like role playing, they're the young person, what, how, you know, what could have happened to them, and then how would they approach working with that young person, having, you know, generated this this kind of map of where the young person is at right now. And listening to Joe Robinson this morning talking about you know developing all these digital platforms for talking safely with each other and with professionals, 
you've, you've also got an idea about digitizing this, which I was slightly disappointed by, because I, lo I love the idea of little laminated cards, but tell us about that. Yeah, well, that's come from the young people. So we did have this incredible moment doing some of our engagement work in the community and say, well, look, we have this research tool. We've got a hunch that it could be really useful in a therapeutic way. What do you think? And, uh, they, you know, there was a real kind of agreement that it would be very useful to have as an app so that you can track how, how you're doing and then take that to talk to a therapist or a caregiver. So kind of a blended model so I think you know there is the huge potential I, I love the cards and I slightly worry that there's something about physically having the cards and the space to move them around and talk about them that's really important so I think we need to do some work on that um, but the initial study that we've done with the online card sorting seems to be going pretty well people are still enjoying it so I think we need to do some studies where we kind of compare them and see if we're getting different results and so on. So the analogue will remain, the oh. offline stuff will always remain. Good, I'm so delighted. You'll be the only person using this tech. Well done. <laughs> thank, thank you both for joining me and for chatting. Okay, thank welcome. you. Thanks.